David Gerard is the author of the book and blog, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. This is David Gerard. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Cool. I am here with uh, David Gerard. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Hello. Uh, so you have uh, a popular blog and you've written books about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's a lot of noise on this issue. How did you get started writing about it? So I've sort of been following this on and off since about 2011. Like that was when I first heard about Bitcoin and I went, all oh, right, so it's a nerd money being done by libertarians. From these people, I can predict how it'll go. And it more or less has gone that way. Um, it's like, I only started following it more closely around 2014 or so when I got onto Reddit Butcoin, which um, is most entertaining. It's basically a place to make fun of Bitcoin and everything that ever descended from it. And around late 2016, I was chatting to a friend and saying, hmm, I need some money. And they said, why don't you write a book? I went, what about? And they said, why Bitcoin is stupid? Make it 15,000 words. Spend about a week, don't work too hard. So I thought, great idea. And nine months and 55,000 words and 400 footnotes later, I had a book. <laughs> this yeah. came out just in time to, it came out, like I started it late 2016 when nobody cared. But by the time it came out, July 2017, um, the Bitcoin bubble had just, was in full throw. And, um, so suddenly I had a market and it took off because there were only like three skeptical books about Bitcoin. Like there was one from 2014, there was one from 2016, and then there was mine and hundreds and hundreds of books about why this stuff was fantastic. So I was basically became the go-to guy. And somehow I then started a blog based on it and... Um, it's still popular years later, so fine. It's sort of become half a half a second job. <laughs> yeah, it, it's and you, you mentioned there that uh, it was started by a bunch of you know nerdy tech libertarians, and you said in your book, "Attack of the Fifty Foot Blockchain," which is a great title. Uh, that from day one, Bitcoin was about pushing politics. Uh, could you elaborate on that? How so? Well. Bitcoin was, I mean, the thing about the design of Bitcoin and all the things about it, it was designed to push a particular political line, um, more or less um, anarcho-capitalism, Austrian economics. Uh, the thing, Austrian economics was the thing where people went, we want a gold standard. Like, the world went off the gold standard in the 30s because basically gold couldn't keep up with the demands of the economy. Like, we'd had the gold standard since about the late 1700s in the UK and the US and other countries, where you have gold or silver in reserve and you issue paper money based on it. So it turned out that system just wasn't really holding up very well after um, um, a hundred odd years. So basically countries got out of the Great Depression as they went off the solid rigid gold standard. And the last bits of it were finally abandoned in 1971 and now gold is not money it's just a very popular shiny rock so 
in any area, like science or economics, if you have an idea that is abandoned because it doesn't actually work, there'll be people who go, actually, the bad idea is a good idea. And they'll frantically advocate for it. So that's where um, these ideas came from that are called Austrian economics. Um, this, there was a whole thing. One of the founders of that school, Ludwig von Mises, had a great thing he wrote about how you can't make predictions about humans. So therefore, you cannot possibly make predictions about economics because it's all the actions of humans. So therefore, you can't make predictions. There's no such thing as experimental evidence. Um, it's all narrative and working out things from first principles. And for some reason, they expected people to still listen to them. So you sort of had this literally anti-experimental thing which didn't care about real-world facts. It just worked from axioms. So the thing was that Bitcoin started with the cypherpunk mailing list in the 90s, which is where a lot of um, cryptographic stuff was worked out and there was a small undercurrent of people who wanted to push this sort of digital version of Austrian economics and anarcho-capitalism um, take libertarians basically so they kept trying to come up with a form of money that would do this and they had a lot of ideas but the thing they founded on was that they wanted there to be absolutely no possibility of a central authority that was absolutely a sticking point right so it had to be completely decentralized. There had to be no chance of someone telling you to reverse a transaction or take your money. Like the threat model from day one was governments taxing you. Um, the cypherpunks list shut down um, in the early 2000s. One of the lists descended from that, um, the cryptography public policy list, uh, which is a more sensible sort of place. But the guy who came up with Bitcoin posted to their outlining basically the plan that this was for. Um, so the idea of Bitcoin was based in these ideas. Everything about Bitcoin is like a limited supply. That's because they thought a strictly limited economy would keep things sensible and good and noble. Um, mining, they wanted it to be like gold. The words Bitcoin mining were chosen by analogy to gold and so on. So you had all these ideas on economics that the important thing about these ideas is they don't work and we know they don't work but they were still pushing them very hard because they believed in them so the thing was this led to a lot of um, quite predictable sort of collapses and mishaps um, economically uh, where things just don't work the way that they expected them to and because they said things like a whole new paradigm a new form of money then by the time you could trade Bitcoins for actual money reliably, which was only since about 2011, the very first thing that happened was this massive wave of, of scammers. It was just amazing stuff. So, yeah. The um, thing is that the only consistent politics I've seen in Bitcoin is number go up. They're in it for the dollars. So Bitcoiners will claim that actually being adopted by financial institutions is good news for Bitcoin even though that was literally what they were against in the early days. But the basic mythology of the politics still holds there, that decentralization is good in itself, um, even though Bitcoin's functionally re-centralized. It, it's just loaded with contradictions every twist and turn. Uh, so let's examine some of those contradictions. Uh, first off, I want to 
touch on a point you made that uh, it's based off of ideas that don't work and that we know don't work. Uh, And I think you're referring to the gold standard. And when you mentioned the gold standard was, you know, the last vestiges were stripped away in 1971, I assume you're referring to the dismantling of the the Bretton Woods system um, that, you know, regulated international finance on some level. But that was not just bemoaned by uh, libertarians in America. Like people like Noam Chomsky also said that that was a mistake and that it led to um, you know, a, a lot fewer restrictions on international finance and speculation and so on. Oh, um, yeah, there's a lot of problems, but we've exchanged the old problems for a new improved bunch of problems. I must stress there's plenty to object to in the present system and the way it works. There's lots of things wrong, but the Bitcoin proposal is something that would be like even worse and work even worse and that couldn't possibly scale up uh, as another detail. I gotcha. Um, I guess the only question I had, though, on that was, I mean, the economy after the Great Depression until the 1970s was probably growing on a more egalitarian basis than uh, it has in the past 30, 40 years, right? Yeah, that's because taxes actually flowed back down again. Um, That was largely abandoned with the into the 70s and then in uh, very hard from the 80s onwards but again bitcoin literally would not fix that and would make it worse sure i'm, I'm just trying to figure out because I, I mean and i'm not saying this as someone who has a you know quote-unquote dog in this fight i, I literally don't know sure. what, what about um the ideas that bitcoin is founded on um on, on what basis can we say for sure oh they don't work well Let's see. Firstly, things like Bitcoins have decided that deflation in a currency is good, actually. Having the purchasing value of a currency go up rather than slowly down. Um, they think that any, any inflation at all will immediately lead to hyperinflation and you'll become Zimbabwe. So that's not the case. But also deflationary currencies, people stop spending them. Now, the price of Bitcoin went up because it was a vehicle to speculation. But this also meant that Bitcoiners didn't spend it. So this is why Bitcoin basically had no merchant use case or a negligible one. Um, Things like that. So you have a whole lot of ideas set on faith and none of them seem to work out in practice. They said they want Bitcoins to be peer-to-peer electronic cash. There's a number of issues with that. I mean, the trouble with Bitcoin is there's like so many things wrong because it started in wrong ideas, in ideas that didn't work and weren't really very consistent. And um, then they put it into practice. And the promise has always been get rich for free. That's a very popular product. Like you don't even have to deliver. You just have to make the offer and you'll have a very popular product. And you just... It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense, just keep saying the words and doing the things and you'll get rich for free. Right. So Bitcoin's merchant case failed because you'd keep getting Bitcoiners nagging shops to um, take Bitcoins as uh, payment in Bitcoin. So we have problems with the volatility of Bitcoin and so on. But the biggest problem was that Bitcoiners didn't spend their Bitcoins because they held on to them instead, thinking they'd go up.
Mm-hmm. So um, they would um, nag a merchant to adopt Bitcoin. The merchant would then put Bitcoin into place. Then no one would use it. Then the merchant would switch off Bitcoin. Then they get more complaints than they had at people actually spending Bitcoins there. This happened a lot. Um, by 2015, Bitcoin's tiny transaction capacity had filled. Like, Bitcoin was literally the first paper and string mock-up to show you could do this sort of thing. And then they pressed the paper and string mock-up into service. That never works. That's just a very bad engineering practice. It's like a one-line statement of a disaster. So Bitcoin transactions suddenly became slow and expensive. Like, I actually know people who took Bitcoins as money. I have one case study in the book, um, individual pubs. Um, they, that's a pub chain in the UK which was founded by a computer scientist. He's sold it now, but um, at the time he was taking Bitcoins, and I went, you are the guy who could take Bitcoins and do well out of it. Because, you know, he understood exactly what a Bitcoin was and how it worked. Um, so he took Bitcoins fine up until about 2017 when transactions were so clogged that he couldn't be sure they'd get through. Um, and fees were like $20 for a transaction and you can't sell food and drink on that sort of arrangement. So he switched off the Bitcoin gateway. Like even the merchants who could take Bitcoin, they couldn't take it anymore because it was just so... So it failed so hard at, it, at literally its one job that it was put forward for. And this is when you heard Bitcoiners talk about, oh, no, it's a store of value because the previous narrative had failed. Right. And you talk about in your book, and this sort of relates back to the uh, analogy to gold, where people say, okay, we're going to have a limited supply of this thing, uh, much like gold, and it's going to act as a, a hedge against inflation, much like gold. Um, and then you give an example that was really interesting, where Bitcoin in late 2013 dropped from $1,000 to $200, um, you know, less than two years later, 400% inflation, while supply only went up 10%. So yes. why is that? Well, that's because, see, one of the precepts of Austrian economics is that inflation, which is conventionally defined as purchasing power of money is identical to inflation as in increase of supply of the currency that's wrong that's like that's just not true they they aren't linked that way you can pump out dollars or whatever so fast that you get hyperinflation but this is well known by every economist and every ministry of finance in the world um, as being the danger of printing money so you want to they approach it very very carefully <laughs> you know um, so the thing was that that literally showed that those two things aren't linked and that they especially weren't linked in the one thing that claims they were linked um, like the word inflation doesn't mean in most economics, it just doesn't mean increasing the supply of the currency. It means the purchasing power of money. You know, the other meaning is an older meaning that really isn't the current meaning. But whenever, whenever a Bitcoiner says inflation, that's what they mean. And it, it's a confusion of terms. It's using specialist jargon in a general context, and it's misleading. And um, 
What about you know cases like Tesla, where it is a merchant use case of saying, hey, you know, we're allowing people to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. Do you feel that they're kind of compromised on this issue because they own a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and so they're incentivized to drive the price up by legitimizing it? I think that um, it's partly that um, it's, I don't know what the hell Tesla thinks they're doing. Uh, they also made it really really hard to buy the teslas with bitcoins or put a deposit on it like you get a temporary deposit address which is only active for half an hour and like it's quite hard to get transactions through on bitcoin because it's clogged like you have days of transactions waiting in the mempool and they only go through it but a few transactions every second or a whole a certain bunch every 10 minutes um so you had a guy who tried to buy it actually used bitcoins for his tesla deposit and they basically disappeared into thin air he was not happy he was extremely unhappy he was tweeting going elon please <laughs> you know and the terms of service said ah no no comeback mate so it, it's really brittle and hard to use as a currency like the fact that the design decision no reversible transactions that means customer service is literally impossible by design you can't fix mistakes in the conventional finance industry you have reversibility up to quite high levels because fat fingers and fraud happen with bitcoin if i pick your pocket from the other side of the world those are my coins now and you're going to have a heck of a time getting anything back so the tesla thing i think is taking bitcoins for teslas it's a publicity stunt um maybe they will eventually take some bitcoins for a tesla deposit i don't know but it's never going to be a big thing there. I don't know what is Elon Musk is thinking taking Bitcoins because Tesla's whole message was we're about green energy and the energy transition and Bitcoin is such a climate disaster that I don't... He basically threw away most of what Tesla had done there and the worst thing was him talking up energy transition, Elon Musk does a lot of silly things that make no sense but i can forgive him a lot of his silly and nonsense stuff as long as he keeps talking energy transition credibly so i really really wanted to back off the bitcoin thing so he can talk the good stuff again you know yeah well actually speak a little bit about that because you mentioned again in the book where it's something like 20 to 30 dollars of electricity costs for uh to produce you know a very small amount of, of bitcoin in the mining and a lot of a lot of the work done on mining because it's you know a competition among a bunch of computers around the world to see who can solve the problems that build you know new blocks in the chain uh, a lot of that that work is just spent energy and it doesn't actually create new bitcoin so it's it's kind of on, on an ecological level what, what is the cost here so the cost of mining the economic incentives are that the cost of mining one bitcoin will approach one bitcoin but that can take many months to um, equalize so at the moment the bitcoin price is hovering around fifty sixty thousand dollars for a bitcoin the cost of mining a bitcoin i think it's currently around nine thousand dollars so there's a lot of pure profit there in mining uh but like $89,000 worth of electricity, that's a lot of carbon dioxide it's pumping out. Um, it's hard, 
it's a lot of work to figure out um, the actual numbers here, but if you have, work it out per electricity grid, which is the correct amount, because you don't just work it out per plant. You know, you might have a plant that runs 100% on green energy, but then it pushes all the other customers onto dirty energy. Like, this has happened a lot with Bitcoin miners who swoop into a town, take up all the uh, hydropower and force locals onto dirty electricity from outside. So you calculate it per electricity grid. So a good number is about 30%, assume 30% renewables, then you have 70% carbon producing stuff. And that's quite a lot of CO2. Um, I don't have current figures to hand. I'll just have a look. Let's do this live. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to digeconomist.net, which is like one of these standard sites which does these calculations. Um, there are other groups. There's a unit at Cambridge University who does them. Sometimes they end up with slightly different numbers, but all the numbers are squishy because there's no central authority and they um, all have to make reasonable assumptions, which they state. So that's all right. Uh, so annually, we have approximately 46 million tons of CO2 and about 11,000 tons of electronic waste. Um, for a single transaction, it's about 428 kilograms of CO2, and the share of that in electronic waste is about 100 grams, because the mining hardware, once it's old, they throw it away. Right. It's, uh, it, it, they're absolutely in it for the money and will do whatever it takes to just make money in what is normally a pretty cutthroat business. Um, during a Bitcoin asset bubble like we're in at the moment, then there's, it's very profitable. But like for much of 2018, 2019, it frequently wasn't. And you'd see like miners shut, just shut down because the price had gone too low, that sort of thing. Uh, okay, what about other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, where you can use smart contracts, where you can, you can attach a piece of code to this blockchain and you know you can make it, it it's at least in theory more versatile than a bitcoin where it's also being used for things like nfts which i'm sure we'll get into but do you see any hope with uh, ethereum so the problem with ethereum is it also works on proof of work i guess we better explain that yes. proof of work mining was the attempt to make bitcoin decentralized right they could not work out any other way to make sure it would stay decentralized because they wanted to have a wide variety of participants, but they wanted to make it hard to just fake it. So you couldn't just say, I declare myself a Bitcoin miner because you get a lot of people creating sort of sock puppet identities to pretend to be different people, but they're all the same person, which is in cryptography, that's called the Sybil attack. Um, so the only way they could come up with it was proof of work, which is really proof of waste. You show your commitment by committing resources. So, literally, you waste electricity, and that's very hard to fake. So, the trouble with that is there's no limit on how much electricity could be spent on it, because it's literally running a lottery. Like, you get a block of transactions, you guess a number, you then hash the transactions with your guessed number, and you see if it comes to a number that wins the bitcoins. If it does, woohoo! 
you've won that blocks bitcoins. If not, you try again. Just generating lottery tickets requires like sextillions of calculations per second, um, or per 10 minutes, sorry. Sextillions per 10 minutes, yeah. Um, it's literally a lottery. Most of it's wasted. The actual calculations, you could do it on an iPhone. You could do it on a 2007 iPhone. You know, it, it's not a lot of work. But literally the rest is just wasted. And it's most hilariously inefficient payment network in human history. Um, so Ethereum has the same problem because it works by proof of work. They've been saying they'll get off that since 2014. They haven't yet. <laughs> What they've done is they've spent years working on this and they've come up with all sorts of ways that you could easily exploit a proof-of-stake network or a non-proof-of-work network and try to work out how to do this. They think they've got it this time, but then they said that a few years ago as well. So I believe they've done it when they've done it. Like, their work is very sincere. I do appreciate that Ethereum is working hard on this and they're trying to do new computer science, basically. Um, they haven't cracked it yet. They're working on it sincerely, but... I'll credit they've done it when they've done it. Until then, you can run other stuff on top of Ethereum, but it still takes Ethereum transactions, each of which currently is running around 72 kilowatts or 34 kilos of carbon. Right. And I guess we should say a couple of things about Ethereum. When they say they're moving to proof of stake, the, the idea is that instead of people competing and mining, um, you're kind of just, uh, you know, you're picked randomly uh, to receive some block and you basically perform an operation that says, this block looks good to me. And the idea is that instead of everybody competing in this lottery, we can have better energy efficiency. Um, you know, in theory, it's less immune to centralization where like a few, like in Bitcoin, where you just talked about a few um, people who've invested a ton of money are mining most of the Bitcoin. Um, but here's my question, though. The smart contracts, where you can, you can code something on the blockchain and, you know, create a specific use case out of that, isn't there more potential uh, for real-world applications of Ethereum, then, of something like, as opposed to something like Bitcoin, where it's just at least in theory, a straight currency. You can't manipulate it with, you know, new code. Maybe. I mean, so basically, you can run little programs on top of Ethereum, and these are called smart contracts. They're not smart, and they're not contracts. That's quite important, by the way. They're just computer programs, right? They're like, in these in conventional world, these are called database triggers or stored procedures. But, um, yeah, so you can run stuff on top of Ethereum, like it's the operating system and your programs are the applications. So the, potentially you could do anything. But let's look at what they've done in practice. What we see a lot of is with the ICO craze in 2017, the number one use case was unregistered penny stock scams. Um, in 2020, they've gone to DeFi, Decentralized Finance, which pretends to be an exciting new financial paradigm, but in practice is shuffling money between crypto gamblers faster. Um, the new thing is now NFTs, which were marketed as selling artworks, but in practice 
and potentially you could do all sorts of things with that by the way um like you could it's easier to think of actual artistic use cases for nfts in practice it's literally a crypto token with like a web page address in it that's all that's the whole thing right and um once you know that you go what's actually happening here you're not buying an artwork you're not buying something that points back do you even own the artwork you're pointing to? Did you have anything to do with it? In a lot of cases, it turns out they don't. Is there any actual thing here, or is it a bunch of crypto people pumping this to try to sell more cryptos to people? Yes, it turns out in a lot of cases it was. Um, so there's so much potential here, but I do think we have to talk about what it does in practice. And increasingly, crypto becomes more and more elaborate ways to run cheap scams something about it is just a bat signal for scammers and i think it's because of that thing of whole new paradigm a new world of money things are different now and that's like that gets a lot of naive people in and then their money disappears that's a real problem um like you can say we'd like better things to happen but one, they'd have to happen more visibly, and two, the bad stuff would have to not be the overwhelming majority of it. Um, so, yeah, um, there are lots of smaller blockchains as well um, that might do other things. I mean, I've seen, like, good NFT schemes that are clearly just, they work really well as um, participatory um, conceptual art, and that's great. But... Um, the typical case is like sort of terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had, um, I have a cousin of mine who put up a, a piece of his digital art as an NFT and he was explaining it to my uncle and my uncle was asking questions. My cousin's like, listen, you're trying to make sense out of senselessness. <laughs> just, just let it happen, you know? You um, yeah. It is, so. Did he end up selling it? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, if he did, good luck, because you know I'm very much on the side of artists who make money, and if they make it from crypto pumpers, well, at least it's money in better hands than theirs, you know. But uh, <laughs> on average, it's not. Mostly, it's not going to work out very well, and a lot of the market for NFTs was just completely faked. Um, there turns out to be no secondary market for these things, and now prices are crashing. That sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, we're we're. I, it seems like a lot of people are buying these things not because they want them, but because you know it can perhaps they can turn around for a profit. And now that it doesn't look like that's happening, it, it's sort of crashing. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that sort of thing. I mean, that's the best thing for the NFT use case. If it's like absolutely a financial disaster then that's excellent because then they can the art, the actual artists can do some something artistically of value with it you know mm. what do you think about blockchain itself i mean it, it, there have been people like bill gates and jamie diamond and i mean other smart connected uh mm. you know people who think that hey you know maybe i don't believe in bitcoin but blockchain as a technology where you can sort of decentralize trust, quote unquote, um, isn't isn't that valuable, or do you see any use cases for that in the future? So I don't really, because now the thing about blockchain, 
was that it was originally marketed by Bitcoin people as another way to publicize Bitcoin. And they said, you can use the blockchain in business. They meant the Bitcoin blockchain. It turned out Bitcoin wasn't very useful for this purpose. So I thought, let's take a version that we can sell as a business sort of system. Um, so the big problem is that the decentralized blockchain would use proof of work. And so no business is going to set a whole bunch of money on fire if it can avoid it, because that's inefficient. And also, do you really want decentralization? Usually you don't. Um, if you have any, the slightest bit of central authority in a system, like, for instance, you are the owner of a business, then you probably don't want that. Um, how do you work with other businesses? Well, the way you do it is you have legal arrangements and you form a consortium, and we know how to do this already. That sort of thing. What I see a lot of with business blockchain is they come up with a version of a blockchain where instead of using proof of work, they use some variation on just taking turns. Um, or they have a central author authorized list of nodes who can do the processing. You even see this in some cryptocurrencies, like that's how Ripple's XRP works, for example. Like it's very fast, very efficient, and that's because it's basically run by Ripple. They pick who gets to be the blessed nodes. Uh, and this is like the obvious sensible way to run a system where you have a touchable entity. You know, um, the thing is that blockchain in the business, enterprise blockchain, it's a marketing term. It's like they're trying to sell the um, concepts from Bitcoin. Decentralized, trustless, um, to a market where you don't actually maybe want that and where it doesn't make sense and where the product you're selling literally can't deliver that anyway because it's like run by someone. And I've seen... Also, there's no technological definition of blockchain. I've looked really hard for a solid tech definition and there literally isn't one. Um, like you or I could say, uh, yes, I think a blockchain is a um, tamper-proof ledger, Merkle tree ledger, and a mechanism to add new data to the ledger. Like that describes Bitcoin, most blockchains and so on. And it makes sense as a definition. And a lot of people would say, yeah, that's, that's a one-line definition. But in practice, that doesn't come anywhere near encompassing all the stuff that's been called blockchain by marketers. It's quite amazing. I mean, whenever you hear anyone talk about the Estonian blockchain revolution, they're talking about a product called KSI blockchain made by a company called GuardTime, who literally admits that they called it blockchain as a marketing move. Like, it's, it's basically just timestamps in a Merkle tree ledger. And I'm sure it does its job great. You know, I've no reason to think it doesn't do the job it actually does. Right. It's just a timestamping tool. And that's fine. And they've actually said, yeah, when, when the shine comes off blockchain, we'll change its name again. Which <laughs> is one refreshingly um, honest of them, you know, because they, they quite like their products and it's fine. But, you know, if they can sell it, that's good. I mean, R3, um, they were selling their quarter software they originally said and it's not a blockchain and after a while they just went fine you want to call it a blockchain right it's a blockchain now you know <laughs> it's various digital ledgers that you can prove various things cryptographically you know it's really interesting um i don't think it's really found a big market yet but they're doing this real company doing a real product you know 
maybe it'll find a solid use. But yeah, there's a lot of nonsense marketed as blockchain because the actual blockchain is a set of marketing promises and whether the software delivers, that's a secondary consideration. Well, okay, but you could say that you could have said the same thing about the dot-com bubble where you had companies that were adding the word dot-com to their, their, you know, to the name of their companies and they saw their valuations just, you know, skyrocket. And then we had the dot-com bubble burst and, you know, a lot of those tech stocks, um, you know, went down the toilet. But long term, people were right that the internet was going to be revolutionary, despite the fact that there was a ton of marketing hype and despite the fact that there was a ton of uh, even fraud. Do you see, though, the idea of, um, you know, some kind of decentralized ledger? Um, do, do you think that these figures that I, I mentioned, like Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates and Jamie Dimon, etc., do you think they're just wrong about it ever having you know a, a positive use case? So I'd ask, what, what was the precise words from Bill Gates that he said? Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but what he said was, I don't. He, he said he doesn't believe in Bitcoin, but that um, blockchain as a technology probably has a future. Did he say probably has a future, or did he say it was interesting? Um, I think it was more along the lines of probably has a future. Right. So I asked specifically what he was talking about is my answer. Fair because enough. the answer to any such thing like that is, yes, what are you talking about? What is the actual thing you're talking about? Um, I don't believe in Bitcoin, but I believe in blockchain has been um, a standard talking point from people who don't understand either. Sure. Um, and... Also, and this is important, the people hyping enterprise blockchain are literally the same people hyping cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in literally the same venues, most of them, um, and using the same marketing terms, but they change the word from Bitcoin to blockchain. Um, interest in business enterprise blockchain follows, through 2017 and 2018, followed the price of Bitcoin. It was always a proxy for being interested in the fact that Bitcoin was going up in price. Now, that's fair to an extent because there is, like, there's no more interesting story in finance than number go up, you know. It's the point of the enterprise. It's the point of it, you know. They're in it for the money. <laughs> but um, it was always a sort of proxy of interest for cryptocurrencies. They wanted to sound cool, so they talked about blockchain. And the thing is, like, the enterprise blockchain thing started on about 2014. In seven years, you'd expect some really, really convincing use cases to be there. But there sort of aren't. Yeah. Like, that's definitely long enough to have something show up. The, compar the argument from internet is more or less an argument that technologies always make it through, which is false. A lot of technologies go nowhere and just die, which might be because they suck. It might be because they're just unlucky. It might be just because they're just a little bit more expensive than a different technology, you know. Um, very few sort of recover from that and come. I think my favorite example is flash memory. When flash memory was invented, it was slow and expensive, and it, it basically sucked. Um, but then around the 2000s, it started picking up, and um, it 
did a lot better and now flash memory has basically taken over from hard disks you know <laughs> so sometimes technologies come back but you know most technologies don't really go anywhere because some other thing that has nothing to do with this succeeded doesn't mean that a given favorite thing will succeed you know um but also the internet was useful from day one like the early predecessors of the internet um the like before the arpanet was called the arpanet you know uh, it was all used for real work from day one like email was adopted immediately as soon as it could be used because it was obviously useful for real work i think the first drugs drug deal online was around 1970 or 71 students emailing each other to sell each other marijuana or something you know <laughs> and that's a i mean hey it was good enough to call the use case for bitcoin it's clearly a use case for email <laughs> But um, it's like, because some other thing that has nothing to do with my thing worked is never an argument that my thing will therefore work. It's, and because other things succeeded doesn't think, mean that my thing doesn't suck, you know? Right. So do you, okay, in, in that case, um, I, I still don't know, genuinely, I don't know what's going to happen to blockchain if there will ever be a use for it. I remember hearing speaking of people saying that this will be, um, you know, like a lot of, you spoke about this earlier, a lot of people who advocate for blockchain see it as a, a, a tool of liberation, um, you know, from central banks and so on, and, and, and also uh, from, you know, perhaps one of the use cases I heard from someone in industry, um, from an internship, a manager saying, you know, talking about blockchain, you know, hey, it'll be easier to, uh, to prove that uh, who owns like uh, who owns what house, for instance, because it'll just be on the blockchain. So if you have, and he used the example, if you have some squatters down in Ecuador who um, are violating, uh, who who don't own, you know, the land they're on, we can say, hey, you know, beat it. And it was a weird, it was a weird example to give um, because I was in Los Angeles and there are plenty of squatters in L.A. So it had kind of. Uh, I don't think it's too strong to use the phrase. It, it had almost like a hint of colonialism to it, and it indicated that they saw it as being a tool to more aggressively enforce property rights. Uh, do you see that as, um, you know, taking it away from this sort of liberation uh, idea and, and being used in that manner to enforce property rights? This is, again, the anarcho-capitalist thing, where libertarianism is... The, the strain of libertarianism that is about property rights um, and protecting your property rights from threat number one, the government, because, you know, um, so the land registry case, that's a tricky one. I actually mentioned this in the book um, where the problem is not, I mean, we have land registries. There are central government authority that has a list of who owns what and where it is, you know. This works fine. Where it doesn't work is where you have multiple intersecting or overlapping or disputed rights because the blockchain can't work around legal realities. If you have a system of law, then the blockchain can't override that. It can be evidence towards it, conceivably, but ultimately you have to convince the judge. And if you don't have a system of law, then it's whoever's got the most guns. So it's like, 
an attempt, a lot of this is an attempt to work around society and human things using technology that, that won't, just won't do that job. Uh, it, it's, I'd like to say it's bizarre, but you know, there's a lot of people who want to do this. I mean, oh, you okay. get, you, it, it's all like the attempts to make money that will work outside of governments. I mean, sure, you can do that. People invent once the, you have the idea of doing a currency, people who can't get hold of good money will happily invent currencies all over the place. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, like crooks who, in one town, they adopted bottles of Tide detergent as a currency. You know? They were easily shopliftable. They, were e they had a known value. <laughs> they were interchangeable. They had a definite price. So, you know, they adopted... I mean, forget packs of cigarettes in prisons. You know, this was wonderfully bizarre. <laughs> or before that, um, like, drug buyers took to the Silk Road darknet market to use bitcoins on a private network. But before that, they used anything they could as money, phone cards or something. You know, FinCEN has a whole web page on restrictions on use of phone cards because they were used as currency by crooks so much. So, yeah. Um, I think we're getting away from the uh, land use case. But, yeah, it's like a lot of this is trying to work around civil society because they don't like it or they don't understand it or both. Oh, okay, so here's um, here's my question then. Mm. If, if blockchain does not have a, a meaningful future in, in our technological landscape, uh, how do you see this story ending? So I think that Bitcoin will be around for decades. I predicted that a lot. Um, because basically all you need to have Bitcoin exist is a copy of the software, a copy of the blockchain, and two or more enthusiasts. Like, people are still reviving 8-bit computers that no one's ever heard of. I think that we'll find two or more Bitcoin enthusiasts for decades to come. How exchangeable it is for actual money, that's a good question. I think that as a invest as an investment, Bitcoin will become increasingly regulated. Like the regulations are just getting tighter and tighter, because when you have a sort of substitute currency that flows around freely out of the eyes of regulators, the way they deal with that is to really tightly regulate the gateways to and from real money, because the whole point is to get U.S. dollars. There's effectively no cryptocurrency economy. There's no circular flow of income in an economy. So, um, I mean, there's a very small amount, but it's really negligible compared to the people using it just as a substitute for dollars or a way to get dollars. So, I foresee that it will be increasingly regulated. Um, blockchain in the enterprise... I mean, there are some systems which they sort of like use a blockchain as the back-end data store. Like, um, there's Walmart and Maersk supply chain systems, which IBM sold them. Those basically are just quite a conventional centralized system, but the back-end happens to be a copy of Hyperledger. And there's the new New York... COVID-19 passport system, which also is a centralized system that happens to use Hyperledger as a back-end data store. There's nothing blockchain-y about that, but what you'll find is you find systems, I think you'll find that there will be systems that 
they more or less work and they're better than not having the system at all so no one's going to rip out the back end and replace it with a normal database as long as it isn't a problem and those might exist for a while where you have a blockchain version somewhere and people leave it there because it's too much trouble to get out so i think you'll see a few of those linger for years um, i have never seen a use case for enterprise blockchain where it does a job better than a more conventional system could every case of it that i've seen has been someone thinking i have a blockchain how can i wedge it into place here rather than i have a problem how do i solve it and that's really important because the how i have a problem how do i solve it is the right way around and i have a hammer i have a nail how do i hammer it in um <laughs> is the wrong way around Fair enough. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time. And is there, do you have a website or anything like that um, before we part ways here that people can reach you at? Sure. Um, DavidGerard.co.uk um, slash blockchain. Um, that is my blog, Attack of the Fifth Foot Blockchain, which is the same name as my first book. And I've also got a second book, Libra Shrugged, which was about Facebook's attempt to make its own cryptocurrency and how that crashed and burned because they didn't know what the heck they were doing. And I'm on Twitter all the time, David Gerard. David, uh, thanks so much for your time. I enjoyed talking to you and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. All right, thank you to David Gerard and thank you for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gamby. See you next time.